you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Hope your day's off to a terrific start. Got a jam-packed program coming up later this hour. UCLA law professor Richard Hass in his new book, A Real Right to Vote, How a Constitutional Amendment Can Safeguard American Democracy. We'll also, in our second hour, be talking about a lawsuit filed on Valentine's Day last week which um, was against the owner of multiple dating apps like Hinge and Tinder, accusing them of running algorithms to keep people addicted to those apps. I want to hear from listeners next hour. If you use dating apps, uh, how you react uh, and interact with them and whether you feel that you're manipulated by the results that you get. But we begin with another business story, and that is yesterday's lawsuit filed by the Federal Trade Commission and nine states, including California, against uh, the merger from Kroger and Albertsons. Kroger here in Southern California operates under the supermarket names Ralph's and Food for Less, uh, and Albertsons operates under that name locally as well as Vons and Pavilions. A combined Kroger and Albertsons would have over 5,000 stores across the United States. It would be the largest and second largest of the supermarket chains combining. And the FTC lawsuit essentially complain, uh, um, uh, make in the complaint says it's anti-competitive and that consumers and employees of the two chains would suffer as a result result of the combination. Joining us to talk about what it would mean for consumers and employees if if the two companies came together is Phil Lempert, supermarket and be a consumer behavior analyst uh, analyst with supermarketguru.com. Phil, good to have you back with us on AirTalk. Good to have you, Larry. Let's uh, let's talk first of all about the current financial shape of these two companies. They have the most stores in the space, but they're facing tremendous competition from the Costco's, Walmart's, Target's, um, Amazon Fresh, uh, uh, and all kinds of other chains. So how are they holding up financially? They're actually doing very well. Um, The whole purpose of the merger is to be able to put together alternatives for consumers against Walmart. Now, keep in mind the ones that you mentioned, Costco, um, Amazon, Walmart, they are non-unionized shops. Uh, Both Kroger and Albertsons are unionized, so their labor costs are higher. So one of the things and the objectives of this merger is to be able to combine forces um, and Obviously, they're going to have to get rid of a whole bunch of stores, especially here in California, where there's a lot of overlap. Um, so I don't think we're going to see stores close at all. Um, I don't think we're going to see law job losses in stores. I think we will see job losses at headquarter levels because we don't need two buyers for soft drinks, for example. Um, so I think 
it will happen there. Uh, but what the FTC came out with yesterday was really pretty interesting uh, because, number one, they said that Albertsons and Kroger are fierce competitors. That's their word. And they feel that if they get rid of that fierce competition, prices will go up. Now, we've heard from Rodney McMullen, the CEO of Kroger, that he is saying prices will go down. But that's the number one point of contention, whether or not this merger is going to bring prices up for us consumers or down. The second most important thing that came out is that what the FTC is saying is because of this merger, the quality of products that we see on the shelves would diminish. I would tend to disagree with that because what we've seen over the past 10, 15 years are store brands, which became very important to us, especially during the pandemic, especially during food inflationary times, um, that their quality has been going up, not down. So that's one thing that I would tend to disagree with the FTC on. I don't think it's going to affect our price um, or quality. How much do the two chains currently compete against each other? Obviously, in, in dense areas like um, you know central Los Angeles, you've got a Ralph's and a Vons that may be just three blocks away from each other. Mm -hmm. But I would expect a lot of other you know more suburban locations, it's probably people are going to whichever is closer between a Ralph's and a Vons or Pavilion's. Absolutely. Um, there's lots of overlaps in California, um, and that's one of the reasons that they made this deal with CNS Wholesale Grocers uh, to purchase 400 over 400 stores. Um, now, to be honest with you, when the merger first came out, I was one of those people that said 400 stores, not enough. What you've really got to do is you've got to divest six to 800 stores to really make this deal work. And what I really hope happens is we achieve that number, that the merger does go through. And beside those 400 stores that CNS has committed to, there's a lot of other stores that, you know, the the Roundies of the world, the Gelsons of the world, the Bristol Farms of the world um, can, can really pick up. Now, Amazon Fresh that you mentioned before is really interesting to me because they have a lot of cash. They want to be in the brick and mortar business. However, what's happened is they haven't gotten great locations. So it could be that Amazon Fresh comes in and they buy 50, 100, 200 stores um, and automatically become a major player in the California market. What if For the FTC's position here, how much of a backdrop is it when Albertsons acquired Safeway and they spun off a bunch of stores at that time, and then uh, the the group that took over those stores went bankrupt. I think it was Hagen, if I'm not mistaken. And sure. And so then you didn't have the competition from those stores, and those jobs were lost. Well, you know, Larry, you're bringing up a really important point uh, because um, the FTC chair actually in 2017 wrote in the Harvard Business Review um, a, a study, a paper about exactly what you're talking about. Um, and the difference is that Hagen, who took over, you know, up close to 150 stores, only had 18 stores in the Seattle, Washington market. Um, they were not equipped to really take on that many stores. Now, the FTC challenge um, that came out yesterday talked about the fact that, 
you know, CNS only operates 26 stores. Well, that's incorrect. Um, they have Piggly Wiggly. They have Grand Union. They have over 140 stores. They also, as a wholesaler, um, sell to, you know, 7,500 plus stores around the nation, and they carry about 100,000 products. So I'm not sure that the comparison that the FTC is making is real. Uh, certainly, you know, uh, Albertson's divestiture to, to Hagen never should have been approved. Um, that was just a boondoggle from, from day one. This is a whole different circumstance. And CNS is a very good wholesaler, a very good retailer. And frankly, I feel confident that they could pull this off. Uh, but what's exciting to me is really look at the other stores that could pick up stores and be viable competitors to Kroger and Albertsons in Southern California. I would think, Phil, though, the challenge is it's got to be in the right location. If you're a Bristol Farms or a Gelson's, you know, they're only particular neighborhoods given the high price point where those markets are going to work. Absolutely. And and again, keep in mind that the Kroger Albertson shopper is a different shopper than a Gelson's or a Bristol Farm shopper um, economically and also the choices, um, you know, but what they really are saying and they keep on saying is Walmart is who they're really going after. And the interesting thing is at one end, you've got the Walmart shopper who's looking for price. They're not looking for service. They're not looking for a great retail environment. The other end, you've got the Gelson's and the Bristol Farms of the world. This is smack dab in the middle. Um, which is what most consumers are really looking for. Um, and to be honest with you, they could really steal some market share away from Walmart if this merger does go through. We're talking with Phil Lempert, a supermarket and consumer behavioral analyst with Santa Monica-based SupermarketGuru.com. Also with us is Professor Christine Bartholomew of the University at Buffalo School of Law. She specializes in antitrust law. Professor Bartholomew, thank you for joining us. No, thank you for having me. So we've talked about, you know, some of the market issues that are involved, uh, no pun intended. What are what are the legal issues that are at play here that uh, federal courts are going to have to decide? So when we're looking at a merger, the real question is whether a merger might harm competition. It's not a question of will it harm. It's enough to block a merger simply because the potential of the merger is to hinder competition. And so one of the key questions in this litigation, in these administrative hearings, and in the other two state attorney general cases that have been filed separately, there's cases pending in Colorado and in Washington state, it's got to be, has the court, does the court feel confidence enough that this merger poses no risk to competition? If it poses even some, that's a real issue that should block the merger. And so we're hearing things from Albertsons and Kroger about promises that there is going to be lower prices and more uh, competition. But it's not the first time we've heard such promises in the supermarket industry. And in addition to the article Phil mentions, the FTC did a study post-horizontal supermarket mergers to look to see how past promises of lower prices actually uh, panned out. Because it's tricky when you're doing this merger analysis. You're speculating about what might happen in the future market. And what they found was despite past supermarket mergers promising lower prices, those promises didn't come to fruition in at least a third of the time. 
instead prices did increase or stayed stable in another portion. So whether these promises of lower prices are are real and substantiated and whether or not there's enough basis to think that they're going to pan out, it's going to be a central question before any judicial body here. Uh, we're talking with Professor Christine Bartholomew of the University of Buffalo School of Law. We're professor of law. Um, so, Professor, in, in a case like this, how much uh, of what employees say about their perceptions of this? You know, unions have come out largely against this, United um, uh, Food and Commercial Workers Union locals against this. How much of that plays into this, or is, is that a side issue? I think it's interesting that the FTC decided to go into some of this employment side issues. That's what we sometimes call monopsony concerns. And they have in the past influenced the judicial judiciary evaluating such mergers. So while you think about competition and we often focus on what it means to our personal pocketbook, when we think about a loss of competition or a risk of a loss of competition, there are employee side concerns as well. And we have the allegations raised by the attorney general in Colorado that the two companies may have colluded with regard to labor issues in the past is really going to be a concern here, not just because of the labor practices. But when we're looking at a merger, one fear that that the court has to take into account is whether or not consolidation will make it easier to collude. If if it ends up being accurate that Albertsons and Kroger previously colluded on labor issues, that really does have potential impact on how the merger analysis will go as well. Professor Christine Bartholomew of the University at Buffalo School of Law, Mitch in West Los Angeles, says it's already evident, particularly at Ralph's, how much prices have gone up. It really feels like gouging. I've spoken to a wholesaler who says their increased costs don't reflect what Ralph's is charging. Um, Mitch, I shop at a, a bunch of different outlets. I'm, I'm one of those people who sort of you know, pieces together. I'll get meat one place and, and um, you know, uh, sundries in another. Um, and my sense is it's up everywhere across the board. Phil Lempert, can you comment on, on the inflation that we're seeing in supermarket and, um, you know, generally in prices at the retail level? Absolutely, Larry. And, and first, let me commend you. Because the way you're shopping personally is the way to shop. Um, it's not just necessarily to go to one store, but find the store that has the best meat, um, that has the best assortment of products, that has the best prices on toilet paper, if you would, and not only brick and mortar stores, but also online. So if we look at food inflation, um, there's a lot of factors behind this. Number one is climate change. Keep in mind that practically every food or beverage product um, that's on those supermarket shelves, 40, 50,000 of them, start in the ground. And if we take a look at those ingredients that have been affected by climate change, whether it's flooding, and we've certainly seen that here in California, whether it's heat waves, that's a major impact on the price of food. Second is we've got the labor cost, both at retail and otherwise in manufacturing that we've seen. Also during the pandemic, we had to have manufacturers put lots of money um, into reimagining what their factories looked like for social distancing and efficiencies. And also we've got a shortage of truck drivers. So you put all those things together and that's been really what's been fueling, you know, food costs going up. 
Now, on top of that, what we've also seen, and uh, the professor may or may or not disagree with me, we've seen a lot of price gouging from CPG companies, not necessarily retailers. I mean, when you and I go to the supermarket and we go to the cashier and that you know sticker stock takes place, we blame the supermarket. Well, it's not necessarily the supermarket. There's been some soft drink companies uh, that have, since the pandemic, raised their prices eight times. Now, you know, you look at soda, for example, their product cost is very small, uh, but the price of aluminum has gone up but the price of shipping has gone up. But we've also seen shrinkflation, where a lot of these companies have <laughs> right. taken more product out of the package, um, but kept the price the same, or in some cases, even increased the price. So all those factors are what we're seeing happen. Professor Bartholomew, just real quickly in closing, um, how, how big a hurdle is it uh, that these two companies are going to have to overcome if they're going to accomplish this this combination? Oh, it's a pretty big hurdle because at this point, you have not just the FTC, you have the nine state attorney generals who have joined in. In addition, you have two separate lawsuits, the one from Washington and the one in Colorado, and no single decision decides the fate of this other litigation. So now we're talking three full-blown antitrust lawsuits attempting to block this. I'm no, pro I'm no profit, but my guess is that we're going to see additional uh, litigation brought in the next week or two. So I don't think this is the uh, beginning of or the, excuse me, I don't think we're anywhere close to seeing how much more hurdles are in place and how long this is going to take. I, I think the parties are looking at many, many more months of disputes here. Thank you so much for joining us. That's antitrust expert Christine Bartholomew, professor of law at the University at Buffalo School of Law. And my thanks to Phil Lempert, supermarket expert, and uh, he publishes supermarketguru.com. Coming up, we'll be talking about the streaming wars Paramount and Peacock have been talking reportedly about a possible combination. Paramount and its parent company looks like it's probably on the block. The question is who might be a capable suitor and uh, what would happen to the various properties uh, operated under the Paramount banner. We'll talk about that with Bloomberg Managing Editor Lucas Shaw when we come back in just a moment. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. The streaming wars have put legacy media companies into uncharted territory. Some have managed to navigate the big changes in the business better than others. One of those that is challenged is Paramount Global, the corporation encompassing Paramount Studios in Hollywood, CBS, and the streaming service Paramount Plus, among other properties. Uh, Sumner Redstone uh, continued the growth of the uh, company over the years that he and his family controlled the majority of shares that are now in the hands of his daughter, Sherry Redstone. The company's gone from a $30 billion valuation just for years ago to about $10 billion today. Joining us to talk about the fate of Paramount Global is Lucas Shaw, Managing Editor of Media and Entertainment at Bloomberg. He's also uh, the editor of the newsletter Screen Time. Lucas, so good to have you with us. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. So let, let's talk about the, the uh, challenges with Paramount and the potential sale of the company. Is it, in fact, clearly for sale? Uh, yes, it is clearly for sale, though they have said little about it publicly. Most companies are are not going to sort of air public or excuse me, private conversations, certainly about kind of multi-billion dollar deals like that. Uh, but Sherry Redstone, whose family controls Paramount, has made no secret of the fact in talking with people that she's looking to get out of the business. She's been talking to a number of potential suitors about a bunch of different scenarios. You know, any deal is a little bit complicated by the ownership structure of Paramount because the Red Zones control it through National Amusements, which is a movie theater chain that has a bunch of the voting stock, a majority of the voting stock in Paramount, but a small minority of the actual economic ownership, which means that she's talked about deals where she would sell National Amusements and then maybe the buyer would merge Paramount with their company. And there are other scenarios where someone would just buy Paramount, but she's having a hard time finding a buyer. Why? Why is that? I mean, it seems like the the assets are are uh, even with the loss of value. The assets are, are are concrete and and you know, like Paramount Studio, for example, um, wouldn't that be in demand? The, the par- you you picked on the, the the one part of the company that's probably most in demand, which is the studio. It has a, a deep library of classic movies and TV shows, everything from. You know the Godfather to to Top Gun, um, the the real frankly the real estate for that Paramount studio is incredibly valuable. I yeah. think some would argue that the studio and and the lot that it's on on its on their own uh, are worth as much as the entire company is right now. You know the problem is it's just it's a media company that has been in pretty consistent decline for a decade now, as we've seen uh, viewers starting with the young viewers who watched. Paramount networks like MTV, Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, leave cable for streaming. Um, and the company hasn't really come up with a streaming solution to, to solve this. And so its performance has continued to get worse. Its valuation has continued to get worse. And so there are some people who are still interested, but there are others who are looking at this and they're wondering, one, can we just wait longer for the price to keep going down? Or two, why do we want to buy this and take on the hassle of dealing with these declining cable networks just to get the studio that we want? Mm. And and uh, what about the talks that I think it was a week or so ago when um, uh, Comcast Universal was uh, apparently talking about the potential of some sort of a, a shared agreement on Peacock and Paramount Plus? Anything happening there to your knowledge? Uh, th- there have been conversations between uh, between. Comcast and and Paramount about some arrangements, Um, nothing that is particularly advanced, 
to, to my knowledge. The other thing I'd say is that all of these companies are talking with one another about possibilities. And by all, I'm, you know, Warner Brothers Discovery, which has the streaming service Max, Paramount, which has Paramount Plus, Comcast, which has Peacock, Disney, which has both Disney Plus and Hulu. You've got all these companies that we sort of put under the legacy category because they all own these, they all make so much money from cable. Uh, and they're trying to transition their video businesses into streaming, some more successfully than others, but they're used to sort of bundling and selling things in packages. And because none of them have the scale that Netflix has, they're all talking about possibilities to give their streaming services a better chance to compete. And how does the deal that was made for sports programming between Disney, Fox, and um uh, Warner, um, which has the NBA and and uh, NHL properties and college basketball, how much that uh, those three combining on each a third ownership shared streaming service to debut later this year does does that you know raise the odds of deals being done for general streamers? Well, it's it's the kind of thing that people have talked about for general streamers. I don't know that it. Inc- I guess if it succeeded. Uh, when it happens, it could increase the odds. But sports is one of the, the the few parts of the kind of traditional TV bundle, that cable bundle, that hasn't fully transitioned into streaming. And people have been, uh, these media companies have been wary of moving as quickly with sports as they have with entertainment because the live demand or the live audience for sports is still quite large and they make so much money from it that they've had some trepidation. Also, their partners, the the leagues, the NBA, Major League Baseball, NFL, have been less reluctant to rush, or excuse me, have been more reluctant to rush into streaming because they know that linear TV can still deliver a large audience and they don't want to upset this apple cart that makes them all so much money. Mm-hmm. Well, and... and um... It seems like, I mean, just from the outside, that the Peacock and Paramount Plus combination in some way would make sense because both of them have the NFL as properties. Uh, It would bring those two because they're not part of the other three company sports deal that they're offering. It would seem that there would be um, some advantages of combining those services. What, What would be the arguments against them doing it? Well, the argument against would be what are you, how much are you gaining from that? I guess it depends a little bit on the the, the terms of any such combination. If they were to do a, a straight up merger of the services, that would be expensive and complicated. And you'd have to wonder, are you going to grow the overall audience that much? Because they, they both have decent sized subscriber bases. They're both in the tens of millions. So are you going to add more subscribers? Does that mean that you are going to get customers to spend even more time with your service? You know, not that it's in, in any way the same thing, but we've seen with the merger of, of Warner Media and Discovery, the creation HBO Max became Max. They added in all this Discovery reality programming that they thought would complement the kind of premium HBO shows and make that service bigger and more vibrant. And at least so far, it hasn't had much of an impact. So we're still waiting to see an example of one of these combinations of services having a a really positive uh, impact for their owners. Uh, It seems like most customers 
are just, you know, sticking with the two or three default services they care the most about. Lucas Shaw, managing editor at Media and Entertainment at Bloomberg with the newsletter Screen Time as well. If you have questions for him about the future of Paramount, which includes the historic Paramount Studios in the heart of Hollywood, uh, CBS and its networks, the Paramount Plus streaming service, among other properties, we're at 866-893-5722. That's 866 866- or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, We saw the old CBS Television City facilities um, in Mid-City, Los Angeles, um, be renovated and, um, you know, historic buildings be kept, but those repurposed. And Lucas, I wonder, is anyone talking about the potential with the Paramount Studios uh, of them, uh, you know, continuing on as as a studio after a sale versus it being developed for other purposes that might include uh, filming locations, but plus, you know, who knows, residential, other things. Is that being talked about? Nobody has has talked in detail about what would happen to the lot. I think in part because there's there's been a pretty healthy amount of skepticism as to whether a deal would happen. Um, and and even though the the lot is just a, a gorgeous facility for my money, the you know the nicest the it's nicest beautiful. old Hollywood studio around, it's not the the main asset that people think of when they talk about a transaction with Paramount. You know, in that case, they're thinking about. CBS, the television network, they're thinking about TV networks like MTV and Comedy Central, streaming services, Paramount Plus and, and Pluto. Um, there's just, there, there are a lot of different things under the, the umbrella of Paramount, which is why, one of the reasons it's, it's so remarkable that the company's valuation has plunged as low as it has. Yeah, and to what do you attribute that? I mean, I know that, that you know, the streaming wars have been costly, and, and you mentioned earlier about CBS Network and the cable network's audience has fallen off. It's now an older audience. But, it, it, I mean, it seems like there's there still are significant assets. There are. You know, a lot of it comes down to what the future looks like for the company. You see it in Paramount. You see it in Warner Brothers Discovery, which which its stock is also way, way down, I think about 65% over the last two years. Um, you've, you've got these businesses that have made so much money from cable for so long, and the cable business is shrinking at a faster rate then the streaming service business is growing. And streaming is what's supposed to substitute or supplant cable. And not only is the streaming business now growing more slowly than cable is shrinking, but it's doing so from a much smaller position. So you just have a lot of concern that these businesses are gonna keep shrinking over time. And investors don't tend to put a lot of money into businesses that are shrinking because they don't think they're gonna get a great return for it. You know, We're in this moment in the entertainment business in Hollywood where a lot of companies just aren't sure what their growth plan is, right? They know that they can cut to boost profitability, to generate additional cash. But when it comes to growing revenue and making the business bigger, you know, Netflix is really one of the only businesses yeah. growing other than the tech players like Apple and Amazon and Alphabet and Meta and all of those. 
I was going to mention about Netflix, because my sense is there's some people, you're mentioning people who just have what they consider their essential streamers to keep the cost of subscriptions down. And Netflix has, has just had so much content at so many different levels of the audience that I'm sure there are people just like, well, there's more content on Netflix than I could ever see in my lifetime anyway. I'll just stick with that. But there is there is a cutback in production that's affecting all of these companies, including Netflix. Netflix. How do you see that playing out? Well, it's 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 a little ironic that they are cutting production to cut costs to satisfy investors, basically. But at the same time, by cutting that investment, it means that they have fewer shows to offer to people and less reason to then sign up for a service and to grow. I don't think the cutback is uh, the pullback is a is a big deal for Netflix, just because to your point, they're already spending so much money on programming. The difference between spending $17 billion a year and $19 billion a year, I don't <laughs> think right. is something that's going to register with, with most, most viewers or consumers. I do think that you feel it at times on some of the other services, uh, you know, whether it's Max or Hulu or, or Paramount Plus, uh, because they're just not investing as much. A lot of that pullback, though, I think is also happening on the, more on the, the traditional TV side. You'll just see fewer original programming, uh, fewer original shows, I should say, on TV uh, or on what we kind of have traditionally thought of as TV because they are saving more of those resources for streaming or a more efficient allocation. You know, you have these moments where these companies they were making, you know, if you take Disney as an example, they're making original shows for ABC, they're making original shows for FX, they're making original shows for the Disney Channel and the TV network Freeform, and then also their streaming service Hulu and also their streaming service Disney Plus. And it's just a lot of different mm -hmm. mouths to feed. And I think they're trying to be a little more strategic. Okay, well, maybe there's a show that we can release weekly on ABC, but then it's also available on Hulu. And how can we satisfy the audiences without spending quite as much money? I don't know that how much people are going to notice it, right? Because you still have hundreds of new shows being made every year. More than one could ever see. Lucas, great to have you back with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Lucas Shaw, Managing Editor of Media and Entertainment at Bloomberg, and he writes the newsletter Screen Time. Coming up, we'll be talking with UCLA law professor Rick Hassan, author of the new book A Real Right to Vote, How a Constitutional Amendment Can Safeguard American Democracy. We'll talk with him about his proposal when we come back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Coming up next hour on Air Talk, we're going to be taking a look at a Southern California 
EV maker and the challenges that it's having. You know, for a while, the companies couldn't keep up with demand for electric vehicles. Uh, now things have slowed a bit. We're going to be talking about what the implications are for the different manufacturers in that space. Do want to remind you that our 22nd annual Film Week Academy Awards preview is coming up this Sunday, March 3rd, at the Historic Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles. A simply wonderful event. All 11 of our Film Week critics on stage, and they get into it. And we'll be talking about the major Oscar categories. We're going to hear what they have to say, the arguments they make for who they think was unjustly left off the list of nominees and who they think should win in each of the categories. We invite you to join us. Tickets are available right now, and they're going fast at LAist.com slash events. That's LAist.com slash events. Uh, last night, I chose the final one of the clips that we're going to use for the Oscar-nominated Best Pictures. That's all coming up. You'll see it this Sunday afternoon at 1, Orpheum Theater, downtown Los Angeles. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. Joining me now from UCLA, professor of law, Richard Hassan, author of A Real Right to Vote, How a Constitutional Amendment Can Safeguard American Democracy. Professor Hassan, so good to have you back with us. It's so great to be with you, Larry. So uh, what do you mean by a right to voting that would be enshrined in the Constitution? What would this proposed amendment actually say about that right? Well, I mean, I think we need to start with the fact that most Americans think we already have a right to vote in the Constitution. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, we don't. The Constitution, the original Constitution didn't let people vote for the Senate or for the uh, presidency. As to the House, it only allowed for whatever states uh, said could be the qualifications of voters. And, and over time, we've amended the Constitution to prohibit certain kinds of discrimination in voting. But as recently as 2000, the United States Supreme Court said, you have no constitutional right to vote for the president of the United States. In fact, state legislatures could take that away in future elections at any time. So just as a very basic matter, I do a bunch of things in my proposal. But as a very basic matter, we should have the right to vote for all of the offices where uh, we are, you know, residents and live in the area, including the right to vote for president, uh, which is something that uh, is the most popular election that people uh, engage in every four years, even though they're it's least likely to be the one where they're going to cast a decisive ballot. People want to be able to vote for president. And with an amendment like this, is it possible to carve out exclusion? For example, people that are, are serving time in a penitentiary, um, and if the public doesn't want people that are currently incarcerated to vote, is there any problem if you give a, a right to vote, that's a human right enshrined in the Constitution, then is it hard to exclude anyone? Right. So every, uh, if you look around the world, every country in the world has certain criteria for voting. And so I begin with the common ones. Someone has to be a citizen. They have to be a resident. They have to be an adult. Right. So you start with those. The question of felon status, and I believe in all but eight states in the United States, people are restored their right to vote uh, if they've been uh, convicted of a felony after they've completed their um, terms, after they've completed their sentences. Uh, I debate in the book whether or not we should just let this political process continue to grow, uh, which I think is a defensible thing to do, or we should enshrine it in the Constitution. And I was convinced that 
we actually do need to enshrine it in the Constitution because of recent activities that we saw in Florida. In Florida, Florida voters voted overwhelmingly to amend their state constitution. Both Democrats and Republicans supported by about a two-thirds vote the reenfranchisement of felons uh, after they've completed their sentences. But then the state legislature and the governor did things to make that right essentially impossible for uh, these uh, former felons who uh, could be committing a new felony if they try to register to vote and they still owed some fines or fees. And there's no repository to know if they've actually owe these fines or fees. It's kind of an Orwellian system. Seeing those kind of shenanigans, which I think are politically motivated, I think it would actually be better to put that in the Constitution. But uh, you know, this is something that if we do see a political movement towards greater voting rights, that would have to be decided by the people who run that movement. We're talking with Rick Hassan, professor, UCLA School of Law, and author of A Real Right to Vote, How a Constitutional Amendment Can Safeguard American Democracy. He's the foremost expert on election law, frequent guest with us on AirTalk. You also see him on national news programs quite frequently and quoted in major publications about U.S. election law. If you have questions for him about his proposal, we're at 866 893 or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Rick, back when Democrats controlled both houses of Congress, had a Democratic president, they still were not able to, to get through, um, you know, changes to in voting rights law. Uh, the For the People and the John Lewis Acts, neither of those were able to pass. It's even harder to pass a constitutional amendment. So, so you know, what kind of prospect does this have? That's a great point. And, and I addressed that early in my book because... What it takes to amend the Constitution, just to remind your listeners, is a, an affirmative vote of two-thirds of each House of Congress, as well as a, a ratification or approval by three-quarters of state legislatures. We haven't had a voting-related amendment uh, ratified since 1971, before most Americans were even born. That's the one that said that 18 to 21-year-olds uh, can't be discriminated against in voting, and that, that came out of the Vietnam War, where people were being sent off to war, but they weren't able to pick the president who was sending them there. Uh, I think we have to think about this as a long-term issue. And so I would point to the history of the 19th Amendment. The 19th Amendment is the one that bars discrimination in voting on the basis of gender. Back in the 1870s, the Supreme Court rejected uh, a claim by a woman named Virginia Minor that she should be allowed to vote uh, uh, in Missouri uh, but she was disenfranchised because state law said only men could vote. Uh, she argued that the 14th Amendment that protects the privileges or immunities of citizenship gave her the right to vote. The Supreme Court disagreed, and then it took another four decades of uh, political organizing to actually get the 19th Amendment. And along the way, that organization served a lot of political benefits, including the fact that by the time we get to 1920, when the 19th Amendment was ratified, uh, we had 30 states that had put in their state constitution a right for women to be able to vote. And so I think that if we think about this in the longer term, if we think about the fight about voting rights, not about this skirmish to that skirmish, this election to the next election, but we think about it more broadly, an organized movement around voting rights, it may take decades, but we have to think bigger because the problems we see with our elections uh, and there are many problems, not just 
the potential for disenfranchisement, many of them could be solved if we had a more systematic approach like the one that I suggest in a real right to vote. And when we come back from the break, we'll we'll talk about how if you were to look retroactively retroactively at some of these major uh, voting decisions, how an amendment like the one you propose would have applied. But just quickly before we break, you say that this isn't just something of appeal to Democrats. What's here for Republicans in your view? Well, one thing is it would decrease the amount of election litigation and increase uh, election integrity by having a, a, a kind of a, a system for assuring we know who uh, who is allowed to vote uh, through uh, uh, a system of identifying voters, and also it would make it harder to steal elections, which is something which is in everyone's interest to make sure that the winner of the election actually is reflected in the results. We'll come back, continue our conversation with UCLA law professor Rick Hassan. His book, A Real Right to Vote, How a Constitutional Amendment Can Safeguard American Democracy. Again, if you have questions for him, we're at 866-893-5722. Back in a minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle with UCLA law professor and election law expert Rick Hassan, author of A Real Right to Vote, How a Constitutional Amendment Can Safeguard American Democracy. Jeffrey in Silver Lake, you're on with Professor Hassan. Hi there. Um, my understanding is that the Constitution and the, and the Bill of Rights um, protect citizens' right to vote. It, 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 spec- it explicitly says one one person, one vote. Um, and I think that's violated by allowing money to be equal, um, equivalent to speech. Um, but still, it does say in the Constitution, one person, one vote. All right. Professor Hassan? That's unfortunately incorrect. Uh, the Constitution does not say one person, one vote. Where, where did that rule come from? Uh, in the 1960s, the United States Supreme Court, during the period that we refer to as the Warren Court, when Earl Warren was president, uh, when Earl Warren was chief justice, excuse me, uh, the, the court issued a series of cases, Baker versus Carr, Reynolds versus Sims, Westbury versus Sanders, and others, that read the 14th Amendment as in- including uh, the one person, one vote principle. But where did they get that from? Not from the text itself, but from the idea that the Constitution guarantees equal protection of the laws. And many people argued at the time that that was not a fair reading of the 14th Amendment. One of the arguments I make in my book, actually, is that the current Supreme Court might not even agree that the 14th Amendment should be read to include that standard, which is why I'd want to explicitly include a one-person, one-vote provision directly written in the Constitution. So let's go back um, to look at how, if you were to apply this retroactively, how it might have changed decisions. For example, in 2013, Shelby versus Holder, um, the state had the burden of proof, or you said that uh, that the state um, uh, didn't have the burden there. So share with us, if you were to apply this amendment you proposed, how might the Supreme Court have come to a different decision? So I should say that in the book, I trace the history of the Supreme Court's treatment of voting rights. And except for that narrow period during the Warren Court, the court has been terrible when it comes to voting rights. I already mentioned about women's voting rights in the Minor versus Happersett case. It was also a case in 1903 where the Supreme Court 
allowed continued disenfranchisement of African-Americans in Alabama, despite the passage of the 15th Amendment that bars discrimination on the basis of race. And the court continued, as you mentioned, in the Shelby County versus Holder case, where the court killed off a key part of the Voting Rights Act, saying that it exceeded Congress's power. Uh, what I would do is take that part of the Voting Rights Act, make it actually part of the Constitution, and also instruct the Supreme Court in much more direct language than we usually see in constitutional amendments, that they need to defer to Congress when Congress expands voting rights. And so there's a lot that we can do because it's been the Supreme Court that's been the laggard rather than the leader on voting rights. And it's been Congress and the passage of these constitutional amendments and political action by voters around the country that has provided the best protection. Supreme Court's been pushing back. We need to have an amendment that makes the Supreme Court do the right thing for the voters. Now, what you're proposing, though, would that not uh, limit the rights of, of, of counties uh, and states when it comes to how their election laws uh, are interpreted there, how they run it, um, and, and um, make this more under federal jurisdiction? So it would not federalize elections. It would still keep elections at the state and local level. But it would say, for example, that states can't impose really burdensome uh, election laws without a good reason. So one example I give in the book is in North Dakota, where uh, all of a sudden, when Native American voters were supporting Democrat Heidi Heitkamp to be U.S. senator, they instituted a new rule claiming they needed it to prevent voter fraud that required proof of residential addresses before someone could vote. Now, most of us have residential addresses, you know, just our street address. But if you live on a, an Indian reservation, if you're a Native American living on one of these reservations, you might not have one of these addresses. And this law seemed really geared at that. And I trace in the book how it took six and a half years and numerous lawsuits until North Dakota eventually settled with um, tribal leaders who were, who were bringing suit and, and got rid of this requirement or found a way that people could actually vote despite ha not having a residential street address. My amendment that I propose would make it much harder for states to be able to do this and drag things out. After all, we ended up going through election cycle after election cycle in North Dakota, where these voters were being uh, denied or had impediments put in front of their right to vote for no good reason. So if, if that's, you know, that would take away a power that state and local governments have, but it would still let them run their own elections. They just couldn't overly burden voters without providing a good reason for doing so. Uh, Rick, you also propose a federal voter ID number. So uh, this would cut down, you argue, on fraud, but avoid the verification process at the polling place uh, with government issued ID that so many states have enacted. And and that's actually, uh, you know, majority of Americans support it. It's, it's a popular proposal, though, though Democrats are are against it. How would the number avoid some of the same problems as ID requirements? So today, uh, what kind of ID you need to produce is a question of state or local law. So here in Los Angeles County, you know, we use a signature to verify. In other states, they have really strict rules. You can only use a certain kind of ID. In Texas, for example, a concealed weapons permit is okay, but a student ID is not. The problem is not identification per se, but the fact that the government puts the, in some places puts the burden wholly on the voter to get the right form of ID. What I would do is have universal voter registration. So everyone is going to be registered to vote who is eligible to vote. And the government is going to have to go out and find these people. And, 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 and part of that is going to require identifying them and coming up with a national system. 
If you look at other countries, how they run their elections, almost every other country has some form of a national ID card or some way of identifying voters. This will cut back on the potential for fraud. It will also cut back on the amount of election litigation. I think that's a big problem that we see in our elections. We need to have uh, not every election season wondering what the rules are going to be. We need to have more consistency. And this amendment, by rationalizing the system of registration identification and making it uniform around the country, that would cut back on the amount of litigation and make our elections more secure and fair. We're talking with UCLA law professor and election law specialist Rick Hassan, author of A Real Right to Vote. Quay in Pasadena emailed, if a constitutional amendment to vote applied, would you recommend a decrease in the role of the Electoral College? We're almost out of time, but that is is one of the areas that uh, the professor gets into his book. He advocates the abolition of the Electoral College, also a change in the way that senators are allocated uh, so that you uh, don't give so much weight to uh, states with that are much smaller that have the same number of senators as states like California, Texas, and New York. Professor Hassan, always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about your new book. Thank you so much, Larry. A Real Right to Vote, How a Constitutional Amendment Can Safeguard American Democracy from UCLA Law Professor Richard L. Hassan. We have much more to come in the second hour here, including a chance for you to weigh in on dating apps and whether you feel like, as is alleged in a lawsuit filed last week, that they're designed to be addictive and to spark compulsive behavior. We'll hear what listeners have to say. That's next hour. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LA Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Coming up later, we'll talk with the director and narrator of the absolutely gripping Oscar nominated documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol. It's very difficult to watch, riveting at the same time, and just an incredible look at the human toll of Russia's invasion of that Ukrainian port city. We'll be talking again with the director and narrator of the Oscar-nominated doc, one of the five films for Best Feature Documentary. And that's just one of the categories that our critics are going to be talking about 
this coming Sunday afternoon at the Historic Orpheum Theater, downtown Los Angeles on Broadway. All of our critics on stage. It's going to be a wonderful couple of hours with uh, your favorites from Film Week. So please join us. Get your tickets now at laist.com slash events. laist.com slash events. There are tickets still available. They've been selling fast, particularly over the past weeks. I know people just making up their minds about what they're doing this coming Sunday. Please join us at the Orpheum Theater. We're also going to have a red carpet for your arrival. And if you decide to dress up in your Oscar best, there'll even be a nice photo location and an audio booth for you to record a message if you'd like to say something to one of our critics. Maybe pick out your favorite and share some kind words for them. Some of the things that are shared will actually uh, include in our Film Week programs in the weeks ahead. Well, I was reading the Wall Street Journal and the L.A. Times over the weekend. Both had articles about how Rivian, um, one of the EV darlings uh, for a while in Wall Street, has had some tough news for investors recently. And for those that work for Rivian, the Irvine-based automaker, a 10 percent reduction in its workforce was was announced, as well as a revision in its production targets. Now, wasn't that long ago that EV makers couldn't build the cars fast enough to meet consumer demand, but things have changed. And Rivian and Lucent and some of the other companies, you know, that are trying to compete with bigger firms uh, like Tesla and, of course, the legacy automakers who've moved into EVs, finding it quite challenging. Joining us is Ivan Drury, Director of Insights at Edmunds, which covers, of course, the car business. Ivan, good to have you back with us. Just, you know, share with us what what Rivian is going through right now. What What is the trouble at the company? Hey, Larry. Yeah. You know, when we talk about Rivian, this is almost universal to the entire automotive industry, specifically with EVs. Um, you know, it's not just the struggles of a startup or some growing pains that Rivian is isolated to. We're seeing that Ford with the F-150 Lightning, which had hundreds of thousands of reservations, they're having trouble even selling those at all. Um, they're really, they're putting heavy incentives on their vehicles. You know, Rivian They've put a few thousand dollars discount on their current offerings, but, you know, offering you three, almost $4,000 on a 70 plus thousand dollar vehicle doesn't amount to much. Um, And this is in part because, you know, EVs right now, while they're not not selling, they're just not selling at the same aggressive pace that we had seen for the last few years. You know, the anticipation and the hype around you know, the electrification of all automobiles has really hit the brakes. Well, and and it seems like there are just more companies coming into the space. I, I um, dropped into a showroom in Marina Del Rey for VinFast, which is a Vietnamese automaker with EVs that are out. So um, it doesn't seem like there are shortages of companies that want to get into this space. Yeah, that's 100% true. I mean, it's unfortunate that the market has put the brakes on this technology right as the best vehicles the most selection you know it's these things that we were waiting for that were really supposed to help propel us into really astronomical gains in market share have come at the absolute worst time high interest rates questionable job security especially targeting that customer base that is really the one that's supposed to ev adopt the quickest right a lot of tech companies or a lot of companies the larger ones where people have good incomes, single family household where you would easily be able to charge 
you know, things like that, that have kind of hit where the core market was. Um, and now we're shifting to say having some cheaper offerings. Uh, Rivian's going to release their R2 or at least debut what it's going to look like um, and open up reservation banks. But at the same time, even at the lower price point, your demographic changes, right? Your customer and their level of anticipation and understanding of an EV that changes as well. I mean, you know, there's different roadblocks entirely. So even though we have these amazing offerings, it's getting harder and harder to sell them to just your mass market consumer who wants point A to point B reliability and familiarity. They're not getting that with an EV right now. And Ivan, what? where is China's position with EV manufacturing in this? How are, how are uh, Chinese companies doing? Chinese companies are doing a massive efforts when it comes to electrification. Um, even Tesla, Elon Musk has admitted their vehicles are great. Um, and we do see that as the Chinese make more inroads and try to attempt to have more of a, you know, ability to get vehicles into the United States, you know, in mass, like right now, there's some vehicles that are produced in China that are sold here, not many, and they're not under Chinese brands either, right? It's like Buick and Volvo. These are vehicles actually made in China that are sent here where they're owned by Chinese companies as well. So if it comes to the time in which we truly do get, you know, these very inexpensive EVs, from China, that could change things entirely because right now the price point in which you're comparing, say, a traditional gas burning vehicle to an EV, you know, you could easily spend 15 to 20K premium. It would be the complete opposite if we were to start to get some of the Chinese vehicles, even with tariffs in place, um, you know, increasing the price a bit, they would be at par, if not below. And that could really change the dynamics of how someone even approaches it, because that makes the financial benefit far more clear versus right now where there's a lot of complicated math that goes into your equation. And most yeah. people, they don't want to do that. Right. They're just going to default and go with what they know. Well, and I, I thought with gas prices going up, so many people with long commutes that, you know, that would argue for further EV adoption. But of course, then with the pandemic, maybe not quite as many people are doing commutes as many days of the week. And I know all of these things car buyers are factoring into the economic decision for a new vehicle. Also with us, in addition to Ivan Drury of Edmonds, Gil Tal, director of UC Davis's Electric Vehicle Research Center. Gil, so good to have you with us. Always appreciate you you being willing to come on, seems like once, once a month, to provide your expertise. Um, so your thoughts about, you know, Rivian and 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 some of these other companies, the lull they're going through right now. Is, is this just a moment in time they're going to get past this? How do you see it? It is a moment in time, but I'm not sure if they will get past it because uh, it's a very tough business. And it, there is a reason why we haven't seen a, any new uh, car company uh, for so many years other than Tesla. And now we all kind of hope that we will see more coming, but uh, it's a very, very tough business. But I have to say that uh, this cry for no market for EVs right now, it's not what the numbers show us. Uh, in, in a way, the traditional uh, car companies are trying to hold the sticks on both ends. They uh, tell us that uh, EVs will not make it to main market without a price uh, drop. And when the price drop a little bit, they say, hey, no one wants these cars. Uh, you cannot hold these sticks on both ends. The price will go down. And Rivians and other will have to sell many more cars in lower uh, numbers. Rivian is the you know number one luxury large SUV seller in California, for example, but it's not enough. 
And um, what is it that Tesla has been able to do that others have struggled with? I mean, obviously, you know, being first in the market, that's a huge advantage. But what are some of the other things that have benefited the company? Um, Tesla did a, a very good job in moving from selling few cars in a very high prices to sell more and more uh, vehicles in, in a more main market price. Uh, as I as I, te, uh, Rivian is the number one in luxury uh, SUVs, but Tesla is number one in uh, light duty truck with the Model Y in California. Ten percent of the light duty vehicles in California are uh, Model Ys. Passenger cars, the Model Three, they move to sell many more cars. They are still not selling the very low end. They will get there, but moving from few cars to very high income people to setting large numbers. This is the challenge that Rivian and others are, are uh, facing. Can they make this change? And where are we at with battery technology that might further facilitate price cuts and companies still being profitable? Battery technology is, is improving uh, and battery price is uh, going down a little bit because we will see more types of uh, chemistries and batteries. So you will be able to buy the more expensive one, faster charging, more density, more range, or the cheaper one for the car you want. Uh, but I'm, I'm not expecting battery price to slash by half again for a while. We're talking with Gil Tal, who directs UC Davis's Electric Vehicle Research Center. Ivan Drury, Director of Insights at Edmonds. If you have questions about electric vehicles and where the market is right now, what it's going to take uh, for California to meet its mandate, that by 2035, uh, all vehicles uh, sold are uh, fossil uh, fuel-free, we're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893. 5722, where you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Gil, are we on pace to be able to meet the California state mandate? Uh, we are on pace, yes. Uh, we are selling now almost the number we need in 2025, 26. Uh, and um, I think that for the next five to six years, we are, we are on pace can we get it to 100 or we will stop a little bit earlier? I'm not sure there. But for the first couple of years, I think that we are on pace. Seems like, again, and we, you and I have talked about this so many times, that the charging infrastructure, the number of broken and unrepaired chargers, the, the mileage anxiety, even if people aren't you know, typically driving 300 miles in a day, they want that option. <laughs> if they need to, they could drive 300 miles in a day and find a charger and you know be able to, to go on their way. Um, when are we, do you think, going to turn a corner and that that charger anxiety will significantly diminish? So the state is investing hundreds of millions, federal and state and public and private funds are hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in, in charging infrastructure. Uh, we also have a lot of work on, on making them more reliable, more dependable. Uh, but the number one thing is just installing more chargers, uh, and it's happening. It takes time. We will see many, many more chargers. Uh, but I have to say that we will never see no congestion at the chargers at all. You know, holidays, some days, we will have to be smarter about how to use them. Uh, but it is getting much better. It's just a matter of putting the investment. And as I said, my kind of my timeline 
looking at the investment we are say for the next um, five to six years. Uh, we will need to see more investment for later on. Matt in Newport Beach says, I've seen an uptick in hydrogen technology lately. Is that going to be competitive with uh, electric technology? Gil? Uh, for light-duty vehicles, we are probably not going to see much uh, of the hydrogen vehicles. The main problem is the infrastructure, having the refueling stations, the cost of hydrogen. Uh, for a medium and heavy-duty, maybe more. All right. Uh, and Ivan Drury, uh, your thoughts about um, California meeting this mandate by 2035. Do you think that EV sales are are on pace to be able to meet that? I, I think if you look at any state, if it's going to be on pace, it will be California. I mean, things are still good. You know, it's like Professor said that we we're not not selling. Right. These vehicles still are selling. They're just sitting on dealers lots longer. They require more incentivization. Um, and those are things that, you know, of course, the automakers are going to say that, look, people don't want them as much as they used to, um, but people still do want these vehicles, right? So California is on pace currently. Um, we'll see with more politicization of the vehicles and can they spread into areas that they haven't gone to? Because even in some parts of California, you know, you're not seeing as many EVs as you would in other parts, right? So it's still not a the uniform state in that one sense, right? You can cross from one county yeah. to the next and see a difference in flavor. Huge, huge so. difference. Ivan, just in closing, um, real quickly, because uh, Edmunds uh, reviews and rates vehicles, what do EV owners say about their cars? Do, do, they, do they love their vehicles or are there a lot of complaints? You know, it's one of those things, it depends on which one you buy, but there's a sense that for many, once you go EV, you don't go back. <laughs> um, it's one of those things that if you can really reap all of the benefits and number one, it's the ability to charge at home, right? To bypass the pump completely. That is one of those things where if you don't have to worry about it, you know, going to a charging station and fighting for one that's actually functioning, you know, a lot of your worries and whatnot go by the wayside. Um, there's a lot more consumer confidence with purchasing another. But if you need to think about and plan out your day a little differently because of your charging situation, that really can sour your expectations on next vehicle. Um, and that's one of those things that, you know, of course, it varies from one automaker to next, the model that you buy, things of that nature. But there are certainly a group of consumers that are buying EVs right now that will never go back to ICE. Um, really, this is it for them. They are convinced with the technology, mm -hmm. not just early adopters anymore. Like this is They're it. done with the internal combustion engine. Robert Sorry, in Torrance so. said, I, I was planning to buy an EV this year, but there are two big deterrents. One, the federal government's clawback on rebates, and two, construction costs are high. I need to charge from home, and it's too costly to put in the electrical. That's Robert in Torrance. Uh, I want to thank you, Robert, and thanks, of course, as always, to Gil Tal of UC Davis's Electric Vehicle Research Center, which he directs, and Ivan Drury, Director of Insights at Edmonds. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3. Coming up, we'll talk about a lawsuit filed on Valentine's Day of all days last week against um, the owner of multiple uh, dating apps, including Tinder and Hinge. 
uh, claiming that their algorithms lead to compulsive and addictive behavior and that it's designed to do just that. We'll talk about the lawsuit. I want to hear from you. If you're someone who uses dating apps regularly, what do you think of that claim? Do you find yourself addicted to the dating apps that you use? Do you find yourself uh, falling down the rabbit hole of potential matches when you should really be doing other things with your time? We'll be back in just 90 seconds. In about uh, 15 minutes or so, we'll be talking with the director of the Oscar-nominated documentary, 20 Days, and Mariupol. It is an incredibly edited, gripping documentary, as our guest and his documentary team were there for the first 20 days of the Russian invasion of that Ukrainian port city of Mariupol. The footage is heartbreaking, it is compelling, and it's extraordinary journalism by the team of AP journalists who did it. That's the footage that we saw coming out of there was from this small three-person team. We'll be talking with the director, Mstislav Chernov, of 20 Days in Mariupol in just a few minutes. But right now we talk about uh, the lawsuit that was filed on Valentine's Day, of all days, against the parent company of Tinder, Hinge, and a whole host of dating apps. That company is Match Group, and uh, the filers of the lawsuit who were seeking class action status, they filed it here in California, claim that the algorithms that are used by Match Group's apps is designed to lead to addictiveness, and that the whole way that they uh, structure those apps is to get people to pay more and more and more to unlock different matches that are only partially revealed and and require more money to fully see, and uh, that this um, leads to people falling down the rabbit hole, so to speak, of, of dating apps. Joining us to talk about the lawsuit and about the claim in how Match Group operates is senior reporter for Gizmodo, who covers privacy, AI, and the Internet, Thomas Germain. Thomas, so good to have you with us. Um, so um, elaborate just a little bit more on what's alleged here, please. Right. So the lawsuit is alleging that Match Group designs its apps to keep people addicted to using them, which is something that we've heard before when it comes to the tech industry. You know, these allegations have been leveled against companies like Facebook, for example, or Meta, which makes Facebook and Instagram. Uh, but it's a little different here. And in part, that's because match group dating apps in general have a different business model. They don't make all their money on ads, so they don't have the same incentive to keep you scrolling forever. But the lawsuit says that it's that this app, these, this company is trying to keep people hooked on swiping, hooked on looking through matches and convincing them that if they pay a little bit more, if they lock into these subscriptions, then finally they'll be able to find love. Now, whether or not that's illegal is really untested ground. You know, there, there's no law that says you can't design an app in a way that makes people want to use it. But yeah. on the edges, there's some gray area. 
Uh, Hinge charges uh, just about 50 bucks a month to upgrade to their paid service. Uh, speaking of the law, when it comes to the allegation in the suit, is Associate Professor of Communication Studies at the University of Alabama. She's done research on dating apps and romantic relationships. Leah Lefevre. Professor Lefevre, so good to have you with us. We're just hearing from Gizmodo's Thomas Germain. There really isn't, uh, you know, necessarily clear law that applies here. But, um, you know, what have you seen in terms of the behavior of the apps in this way? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I think the larger thing is, I mean, the commodity is the individual who is there. So there is sort of a incentive on the company to maintain that. And I think it's really important that the user be aware of what their intentions and goals are, because there are design features, particularly in sort of looking at it, that do gamify it. It's a form of entertainment in addition to a tool to be utilized to connect, meet, and communicate with people. And so I think the intentions behind what your motivations are are equally as important, but also to know that there are processes and affordances built into the platform that may not be serving all of your interests in combination with their interests. And Leah, did this happen when um, what we used to call online dating, where where people you know go to a website, enter a bunch of information, and be matched with people? When this became an app based, uh, Tinder being at the forefront, and many others that have followed, uh, where it became sort of entertainment as well as dating, is that when this changed? Um, well, some of it was still sort of mechanizing, especially if they're still a business. However, I think the accessibility to it and the affordability, potentially how many premiums you have in association, really call into question uh, the popularity in association with it. So I think it did change sort of the landscape to where the most amount of people are and the smallest amount of time to potentially access that was all sort of at the crossroads of all these mobile dating apps. And uh, elaborate a bit on on how they work. So you there's there's a free level and then there's paid levels. So what do people get access to at various points along the way? Yeah, lots of the premium editions allow you to see who also is um, attracted to you, <laughs> which is a real benefit sometimes to be like, for instance, I want to see potentially if it's sort of using the swipe feature in combination. I'm sure Thomas can speak to this a little too um, with it. So if I'm swiping and liking you, some of the premium features will allow me to see, have more potential to see who also is liking me and who's also attracted to my particular profile. In addition to that, it can also change the proximity you have in association with it, how many sort of potentially like super likes to really showcase and have articulation with how you want to present to others. And so it really allows you the ability to determine what your sort of attractive level is to others and sort of then gauge the connection you're having with people. Last year, Thomas, you wrote a piece for Gizmodo about the idea that um, you know people were were getting uh, in in their dating feed um, people that might be judged as less attractive, but then sort of having dangled uh, more attractive people that if they only paid for it, unlock. And you have a friend uh, who who was describing to you and even showed you on his phone what what he was dealing with. How much of that do you think is is true that the attractiveness level of of people that are on dating apps is controlled and and monetized. 
hard to say exactly because Match Group and its subsidiaries are very tight-lipped about how their apps work. And they all swear that they're not judging people's attractiveness. But what they are judging is how other people react to you. So if a lot of people, you know, hit the like button or swipe yes, then your rating is going to go up a little bit. It's a little more complicated that when, than that when we get to the details. But what's clear and what I've heard from users and even from some engineers at the company is that they are using uh, users who are rated to be more or less popular at different moments to encourage different behaviors from users, right? To keep you swiping or to, to encourage you at a low moment when you're not doing very well, because they've got a limited number of users on the apps and they want to keep people going and they want to make you feel like you'll do a little better if you just break out a credit card. So, um, so they're dan it sounds like you're saying they're dangling these highly rated, highly desirable people there as the come on. I, I think that's true. And I think in some cases they're using people who are judged by the algorithm to be less desirable for other purposes. Right. You know, there I've seen firsthand, you know, it, it's a little gross to talk about because we're we're talking about judging, you know, other people's yeah. attractiveness. You know, it's hard to do. But I've looked through dating app feeds where it really did seem, you know, at sometimes you're seeing these people, you know, that you might hear that look like models, you know, that might be described as a perfect 10. But in other cases, I've seen feeds where really every single person has some glaring flaw on their profile. The, the photos are bad or the profile is awkward. And it does seem like they're sorting users into different tiers based on the algorithm's judgment of how well you're likely to do on the app. Well, and that's got to be discouraging if you're on a dating app and you get someone you know, match with who can't even take an unblurry photo. <laughs> that's got to be, that's kind of disheartening. And I think that discouragement is the point, right? Because again, they're not making money on ads. They make all their money from these subscriptions and premium features. And they even, they show you these ads that say subscribers go on twice as many dates. So if they, they have an incentive, we don't know exactly what they're doing, but they certainly have an incentive to make you feel discouraged. And from everyone I've ever spoken to who uses one of these apps, that's something that they experience from time to time. Love to hear from AirDoc listeners who use dating apps. What's your experience been? And uh, have you found yourself uh, engaging in compulsive or addictive swiping on dating apps because of the algorithms, the ways that the companies design these apps. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, where you can email us. Got to be quickly. We only have a couple minutes left. But ATcomments at LAS.com. Please include your location and your first name. Uh, Leah Lefevre of uh, University of Alabama, uh, Professor, how does um, this, you know, trying to match people according to um, desirable or undesirable quantities as judged by the group, um, is this an effective way to do it to actually get matches for people? Yeah, um, back to sort of that gamification you're talking about, I, I've also read different things where they suggest more attractive people when you sort of first enter into the app each time, like you're saying, uh, to further entice, yeah. <laughs> um, you to continue like, ooh, potential matches or sometimes even equated as mate value, even though we know there are huge distinctions about what attraction desirability is. Is it effective to that 
I mean, again, it goes back to sort of the, the larger goals. And some people are sort of looking at it for entertainment. But if you're really trying to match with people and you're only being showed particularly attractive people that are also unattainable to whatever your particular attractiveness is, it it may not be incentivizing the same way. Um, in comparison, lots of times people often feel like compounded rejection, right? I'm seeing all these people. I go onto this app in connection with them, and then I'm not getting that. And that may further suggest like they want to keep swiping, right? The grass is greener. There's somebody else out there in process. But oftentimes too, it sometimes also has the opposite effect where um, lots of times users delete the app and then come back later after sort of a fresh start again. Well, and, um, you know, just share with us, what's the size of the dating app market? Because I, I was seeing that it's huge, that a very high percentage of people now use dating apps to date people. Yeah. Um, there, I mean, there are billions of swipes a day <laughs> in combination, but that's not even suggesting about how many people are on it to suggest that like addictive behavior that this group is sort of putting forth with sort of the algorithms with it. I guess there my is... point was that, that you know, for if you want to be date, meeting people, I think I saw something like 40% of people use dating apps for their dating. Yes, it is a great market out there to connect with people you probably wouldn't have other eyes. Um, now, is that then suggestive that you're going to meet the person you want or you think that the person is out there? There's lots of research to suggest that like this addictive is behavior is sort of potentially coming because you always think the grass is greener. There's, oh, I just swipe one more. The person is yeah. out there. There's yeah. another potential. Melanie and it's kind of like the gambling uh, come on. Melanie in Culver City says the upcharging is ridiculous on Hinge. There are certain people presented to you, but you can't contact them unless you send a, a rose. You can't send a rose unless you pay. So the app becomes unusable otherwise. Melanie, thank you for that. And I want to thank our guest for joining us, Professor Leah Lefevre of the University of Alabama. She researches dating apps and romantic relationships, Associate Professor of Communication Studies at U of A, and Thomas Germain, Senior Reporter for Gizmodo, who's written about uh, online dating apps. We're talking about the law lawsuit that was filed in California uh, back on Valentine's Day. Coming up, we talk with the director of the Oscar-nominated documentary 20 Days in Mariupol. That's coming up right here on Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. fired at civilian locations, according to the Ukrainians. 
Russians say they are not targeting civilians. nightmare coming true. Thousands of citizens are trying to flee the country. And those who are left behind have filled bomb shelters amid fears of rocket attacks overnight. Ukrainian soldiers like these have put up a stout defense of Mariupol because as a large port it's economically vital and as a major city just 30 miles from Russia it's strategic. For both sides in this war, it is quite a prize. From the Oscar-nominated documentary 20 Days in Mariupol, it's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with the director and narrator of 20 Days in Mariupol, uh, Mstislav Chernov. He's an Associated Press reporter who's covered multiple wars, including Russia-Ukraine. The title of the film describes it. Mr. Slav is the, is, uh, finds himself in the Ukrainian port city as Russian airstrikes and troops arrive. His team's video is the only route for showing the outside world the unfolding catastrophe. Mr. Slav, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. An incredibly powerful film and one that was shown last year on PBS's Frontline, so American TV viewers have had a chance to see it. It's also had a theatrical release. Um, how is it that you're part of this AP team of reporters that was able to be the only group of reporters reporting from the city as it's under siege? It is quite extraordinary that the fact that uh, we were the only ones reporting from a city of 500,000 people who were completely trapped in a siege for, for months I've never seen anything like that before, and I wish there were more journalists so we could tell more stories, but this is the fact. We were trapped there. We we are Ukrainians. Um, the whole team is Ukrainian, so f this war started for us 10 years ago, and we knew very well Mariupol as a city and people of Mariupol. It's, uh, it's our community, basically. So... That's why That's why. even when we knew that the city is going to be surrounded and we probably will be trapped, we still wanted to stay to keep telling their stories. We you've, feel personally involved. And you've covered other wars, but as a Ukrainian yourself, as you're saying, this, this is so much more personal. And... Um, gave you obvious advantages because people were incredibly open with you seeing that you two were Ukrainian. Open, uh, emotional, of course. And, uh, and and again, of course, it's it's quite hard for me as international journalist to keep my emotions and, and uh, coverage, journalistic and filmmaking coverage, separate. And that's where the editors help to when you see the film, you see that we don't moralize anyone. We we keep the distance and we let the audience all just just to know what's happening, to form their own vision. And but as a Ukrainian and as, as Ukrainian, uh, as, as uh, Russia's invasion in Ukraine is the first war I experienced as a journalist and everything started from there. Uh, it was always about about also my home, my people, my family, and it's not only the buildings that are being bombarded or cities that are being 
uh, occupied this is your childhood memories that have been shattered by 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 bombs by by airplanes dropping bombs so i felt such an urgent need to to tell that story and to tell it well and to tell it to as many people as possible um, and that's why this film exists the heroism of so many people that are in this film is 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 very impressive people like doctors who said show this you need to show as as people are dying as they're as they're in the hospital and being operated on um, people who know they could face severe retaliation later for what they've done share with us what that was like and and what you felt as a journalist in the need to honor those people and to strike a balance in in trying to protect them but also showing what needs to be shown to the outside world you know in, in we, we live in a world of misinformations misinterpretations and we all quite aware of that uh, any kind of journalism now is under attack journalists are targets and truth is a target too in this war and so only that only that is already a, a huge motivation to uh, to do what what we did, but also when people come to you and keep and say keep filming, uh, please show the world. Uh, I know they are also doubt. They also doubt a power of of cinema, power of of journalism, as as I do because I do doubt my work. But at the same time, this is an opportunity for them to feel that they are heard. Yes, it might not change much and you see now uh, two years later after that uh, things are even worse Avdivka has fallen and was occupied just a few days ago and so it's another Ukrainian city was which was destroyed along with many others and so things are worse but at the same time when, when the camera is there it lets people know that they're not ignored and that that helps to survive just knowing that your your voice matters in, in a way helps you to survive. We're talking with Mr. Slav uh, Chernov, who was the director of the Oscar-nominated documentary 20 Days in Mariupol, an incredibly powerful film which shows over the course of that nearly three weeks uh, what it's like to be in the center of this port city as it's under siege by Russian aerial attacks, tanks on the streets, and Russian soldiers who are, are committing uh, all kinds of uh, just atrocious acts against the the um, civilian citizenry of Mariupol. How did you keep from breaking down yourself? I know you're a professional journalist. I know, you know, you prepare yourself mentally to cover this, but how did you keep your mental health? Oh, this is a good question. And I deeply believe, first of all, as journalists, we have to take care all the time about our mental health because we cannot adequately tell people's stories if we are not mentally healthy. Uh, but in, in Mariupol, the question was the survival. And what we saw is not only that our own, let's say, identities were, were crumbling, it's the whole society around us was crumbling because people was was 
we were cut they were cut off from from the outside south world they were they didn't have any communication they didn't know their country still exists and and y- you could see how that impacts a modern modern society the absence of communication the absence of information and it had an impact on me too because i was conflicted i i was thinking about my daughters i was thinking about surviving for them but at the same time there was so much responsibility journalistically speaking and just from a civil point of view uh just to keep keep reporting and everyone around did such an amazing work firefighters doctors everyone kept working that motivated me understandably seeing the bravery i was so impressed with the medical personnel and the police who continued to, you know, uh, even the crews that were burying the bodies in mass graves at, and you see their emotional reaction as, as they're doing this, but everybody's on task. Yeah, everybody's on task, and I think that's that's what I found in myself and also in Ukrainian community, and I, I think this is a, an inspiration for for other countries in some way there there was this sense of community that's that emerged from from resistance that people uh, were acting on they 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 helped they kept helping us they kept helping strangers and it just this was such a strong feeling of of their shared identity and and a need to survive together and the same feeling i can see the same uh feelings i can see in people who now watch the film who ukrainians who come to the cinemas or who watch people uh film online they keep telling me that this this feeling of bond this bond between people is what's uh what helped them to survive but, but but I think many countries, especially in the world that we live now, when when everything is a conflict, everything is polarized, and it's not only about war; it's about politics and social issues. And I think we should remember about the importance of that of that community bond that that holds us ultimately together, makes us humans. And the shouldn't the war shouldn't happen for us to to acknowledge the importance of that bond and support to each other. We're talking with the director of 20 Days in Mariupol, the Oscar-nominated documentary, Mistovov Chernov joining us. Uh, this is a very powerful, understated narration, which I think is part of the impact of the film as well. It's really beautifully narrated. We'll continue our conversation with him when we come back in just one minute. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with the director and narrator of the Oscar-nominated film 20 Days in Mariupol, the documentary collaboration between the Associated Press and PBS Frontline. Our guest, Mistilov Chernov, is an AP reporter who's covered conflict around the world, including in his native Ukraine, where he covered this siege of the city of Mariupol. He's there nearly three weeks reporting at great risk 
risk to himself and uh, the crew working with him to get the stories, the firsthand accounts, and the incredibly difficult visuals of what's happening as people are being killed through the Russian aerial attacks and attacks by Russian soldiers on the street. Part of the film is really about the reporting challenge of getting this footage out of the country with no internet, without having satellite access, without electricity in so many points. What were some of the workarounds that you came up with to get that footage outside of the city? So journalism and its impact or lack of impact sometimes and misinformation and misinterpretation is one of the core themes of the film. And it was important for me as a journalist to talk about it. However, it's quite important to acknowledge, acknowledge as well that it's, it's, it's not a film about me or a film about journalists. It's, it's still a story of a city told through the perspective of, of journalism because it's part of the survival of the modern society. Modern society depends on, on journalism, on communication, and attempts to get information out is part of that, what you know, holds the society together. There were many challenges. A part of that is just survival and moving around the city, which is indiscriminately bombarded. That's one part. But then if there is no electricity, where you charge your batteries? And we were charging batteries uh, sometimes from generators, but then they uh, ran out of fuel. And then we were helped by Ukrainian Red Cross Society. And but then their, their building, their office was bombed. So they couldn't help us anymore. And then we charged our batteries in the hospital because the only place where probably was always there was always electricity is is uh, surgery room because surgeries were happening nonstop and sometimes with a lack of painkillers and antibiotics and we had to be there all the time to to report on that but also to to charge uh, to charge the batteries and when when the hospital got surrounded by by russian forces and we just by a miracle escaped that that trap uh, there was nothing left no places left to to charge and i was running out of uh, space on my cards and hard drives and of course by that time i have accumulated so much footage that was probably a material for investigations for possible war crimes or mm -hmm. crimes against the humanity. So it wasn't only about getting reports or one minute or two minute uh, pieces uh, to to the outside world. It was about getting the original files out of the city, which was a much bigger challenge. It's an incredible route out that you take, and just so many places along the way, it could have all come crashing down on you, and you found yourself, uh, the footage seized and, and unable to get out of the country. But you did get those images out after the bombing of the maternity hospital, one of them that is so iconic of the woman who is being taken out on the gurney. She's visibly pregnant, and she didn't make it, nor did the unborn child. And were you aware of the impact of that video once it made its way outside of Ukraine? Um, so her name was Irina. And yes, unfortunately, she couldn't be saved. And we found out about that a day after when we went searching for her. And unfortunately, we found out from doctors that she didn't survive. Just by seeing this scene, 
it's so striking uh, at the moment after the bombing, uh, I already knew that it, it will probably have an impact. I did not have a chance to understand until we left the city what kind of impact it, it has it made. It went around the world. Yeah. Uh, now I know that a part that it went around the world and it became a symbol of, of uh, Russian full-scale invasion and also a symbol of Mariupol, it also helped uh, NGOs and, and governments to negotiate the uh, humanitarian corridor out of the city. So that sacrifice saved hundreds or maybe thousands of people. Yeah, that's probably... That is the power of, of journalism. That's right there. Because we can talk about abstract matters, you know, how that impacts politics, how that impacts the larger picture. But in the end, it's always about rather that makes a difference in a, in a moment where we live. And yes, her, her death and her pain did save so many lives. And at least we could... At least it had some. Now it has some meaning, and mm -hmm. it's it's in the history. So many children killed. Just uh, terrible, terrible images that that document what happened with the Russian siege of Mariupol, and then on Russian television and from Russian officials, denial that this happened, and claiming that it was actors who were shown in the video that you shot and and that you were able to get out of the country. Uh, I can't imagine what that was like for you, hearing people say that this, this, these were staged productions. Um, yeah, and we were called information terrorists, and um, it was quite upsetting, but I wouldn't say it was unexpected for me as a journalist, because, again, for, for many countries right now, information is a weapon, and therefore journalists and, and, their, and their work and truth becomes a target. So I wasn't surprised. Actually, the amount of misinformation and propaganda around that work just showed us how important it was, how impactful it was. But I, my heart, my heart bleeds for for people who lost their families and their lives and their homes, and they were not only all this wasn't taken from them only. It's it's also their their. It feels like their right to grieve about it even was taken from them because they are called actors. That their even their pain is taken away from them and denied. Mr. Slav Chernov, thank you for joining us and talking about the film. It's such an important documentary, and and frankly, beautifully done. Which I know sounds strange when we're talking about such incredible suffering, but it's also a beautiful film. Thank you very much for joining us and talking about it. Thank you for your it. time. 20 Days in Mariupol, Mstislav Chernov is both the director of the film as well as the narrator of it, and it's available on Amazon Prime Video and on the PBS app. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.